Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, our specialist place and environments teams work globally with architects, developers, cities, corporations and governments, delivering successful human-centered solutions across place visioning, property branding and strategic wayfinding and signage. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to the latest episode of Design Your Life from Lego to Skyscrapers. Today, I catch up with the Melbourne-based property developer and founder of Milieu Property, Michael McCormack. Founded in 2010, Milieu works across property development, design, hospitality, events, culture, and the arts. And through their diverse range of activities, they seek out opportunities to foster connection, explore innovation, and cultivate the everyday culture of design and enable a well-lived life. Listen in as we chat about how he found a milieu after seeing a gap in the market during his own search for a new home and why he sees development as a creative act. Hey Mike, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing in Melbourne? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's really cool to have you on the show. I've been watching you for a while and the, and the projects you're doing in Melbourne, they're pretty incredible. And I definitely think we need more developers like you around. Have you oh, always... Thanks, Mike. That's cool. That's cool. Have you always been interested in architecture and buildings? Um, yes, yes. Well, my my old pa was a carpenter, um, and my mum wasn't trained in interior design, but she just always had interior design magazines around the house. So I think I think that, and particularly residential architecture, it's 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 very relatable. Everyone has a home, so I've always been interested in, in kind of yeah, always been interested in it. Uh, what, and what was your experience like at school? Did you find that um school hindered your creativity or your ambitions i wasn't particularly focused at school i think on reflection it's it's difficult for young people because you don't have a lot of exposure to all the different things that you could be involved in or you could do as a career um so for me i found it difficult to gain focus and i probably didn't have um direction as a result of that um yeah so School probably wasn't where my where my interest for um, development and architecture started. It was probably beyond that after that. It's interesting. I, I struggled at school um, and it didn't kind of make sense to me until later on uh, when I found uh, art school, which was really cool. Thank God. So I guess for someone who didn't necessarily do well at school, uh, from the school's perspective, how did you end up studying construction and then law? Yeah, yeah, it's a kind of a, a big turnaround, I guess. I, so finishing school without much direction, but having um, my old father, as I mentioned, was a carpenter. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I went to a good high school and a lot of my mates um, were going into trades. So kind of I looked at them and thought, oh, well, um, let's become a carpenter. Um, so I, I started out work as a carpenter mm-hmm. um, and I did that for a number of years, but I kind of realized I didn't want to be hammering nails when I was 50. Um, yeah. So I was looking at the guy, the, the builder that we were working for and say, oh, that's, that's what I want to do. I want to become a builder. Um, so I thought, how do I do that? And I went back and studied construction management 
Um, and while studying construction management, um, I got interested in the law. Um, and um, once finishing construction management, I started law. I think it's a particularly kind of handy background um, from a development perspective. Wow. But you, were you studying law in relationship to construction or just general law? Our law is a broad degree. So you, you study, you have to study criminal law and you have to study all sorts of different law that I don't really use these days. But um, thankfully, I don't use criminal law. <laughs> um, wow. But um, I use sort of the, the, the contract components and the commercial components and agency and trust and HR and yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I guess that makes you a better developer. In the past, in the old days, developers were <laughs> sometimes known as shady characters. But, um, yeah. That's a bit of a cliche, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. There's a whole bunch of different cliches about developers that we're kind of interested in challenging. Yeah, yeah, you, you're definitely doing a great job in, in changing people's perceptions by doing good. How did you go from that, from build, doing uh, studying building uh, and law, and then, then, then where did you go to? So whilst I was studying, I was still, um, during the construction degree, I was still working as a carpenter. Um, and I got a job working for a development manager, um, development management consultancy business whilst I was studying law. They were uh, like one of the premier development management consultancy businesses in Melbourne, um, still are. Um, at the time when I was working there, there was a, uh, Melbourne was going through a, I guess, a boom in, in the development space, but it was primarily kind of large scale projects um, aimed at an overseas market, investor market. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a lot of experience doing that. And then from there, I realized that's probably not, I mentioned before that um, architecture is inherently relatable because it's kind of homes for people, but I felt like that wasn't really what that was. It was more of an investment product. So I went and worked for a developer that was doing kind of the work that I felt like I wanted to do, um, developer builder. Um, but he had he had aspirations and, and delivered upon those aspirations to develop his business into a much larger scale business, um, which wasn't what I wanted to focus on. So after after kind of working for that development management business and the develop, developer builder business, I then started Millie. It's interesting you say that because I guess people don't think about the fact that there is a difference between um, a developer developing a, 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 an apartment block or whatever that's designed specifically for investors versus designed to specific people's needs. And is that, is that what kind of, res you, you were more interested in the, uh, the people who are going to buy into a place, who are going to live in the place? Like, as oh, you said, early homes yeah. and stuff? Yeah, I was more interested in... Um creating homes for people rather than an investment product for someone like if you, and it's completely different, um, uh, push points for what the projects end up being. Like if you, it's really about a yield, um, an investment product primarily. Um, so you, you'll have a, a lot of apartments that are really quite small, um, and can rent out, um, so low, low, low capital entry into the pro into the apartment and then a high yield, which doesn't, doesn't always lead on what, more often than not, doesn't lead to the best um, place to live. Yeah, I mean, what do, what do they? How can you describe the difference between those in terms of what they look and feel like, apart from being smaller? <laughs> less, oh, wow. less yeah, that's spec. the immediate. I think, um, as I said, like um, keeping the um, capital entry prices in the purchase price low leads to poorer quality, mm -hmm. just across the board. 
um, as well as really quite small apartments. So there's a lot of compromises um, if you're aiming, um, if you're primarily aiming for an apartment to be an investment product compared to trying to create a good home for someone. What about the issue of uh, affordable housing? Because obviously there's not everyone can afford um, a high, highly spec home. Yeah, definitely. It's a challenge um, across the board, I think. Like if you look at inner, inner Melbourne, which is the market that I'm probably the most familiar with, the median house price is um, for most unattainable um, from an established perspective. And that's probably where, how we, how Millie came about. Um, I, I, at the time, um, was looking for a, a home with my wife, Laura, um, and we wanted to live in sort of the, the, the inner north, which is where a lot of our work is still today. Mm-hmm. Um, and we faced the choice of exactly the same dilemma most people still face today. Do we, do we live, it's kind of a choice between living further out and getting the, ha- the home that you want from an amenity perspective mm-hmm. um, within the home or choosing uh, a place to live in the suburb that you want to live that's probably inferior. Um, and it might be one of those kind of investor focused apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. So what we tried to do, it's really inherently started as an affordability kind of a gap in the market. We were looking for something that was aimed at owner occupiers, but was less than the established house price in the area. So what we did is we bought, we bought a block of land that had a, a it was a larger block of land. When I say larger, it was kind of 300 square meters. Um, it had one home, one home on it, one terrace home on it. And we developed five townhouses on it aimed at owner occupiers and that was our first project in Moore Street and Fitzroy. It's still one of my favorite projects today. Oh wow. So we, we think we're tackling the affordability issue um, by providing proper homes for people that are attainable um, but compared to the established house price. And it doesn't feel compromised. You, 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 had, you had one house on 300 square meters then you had five. It, it doesn't feel crammed? Well, it's not as big as that one house for sure, um, but it has all the amenity that you would need um, if you were in that stage of your life. So those those townhouses were aimed at people like Laura and I that were kind of, we didn't have kids at that stage. We were young, we were a young couple. Um, yeah, and they were fantastic. They still are today. Oh, fantastic. That's really cool. I mean, that, that must've been really exciting to do your first project. I mean, I, I often think of, I'd love to do projects like that, but um, it seemed, unless you're a builder or have had that kind of experience, we often market you know, such, such places, uh, brand them and market them. Um, it's the actual designing and creating, and I guess all the legal work that has to be involved in making that come to life must be huge, especially the first one. Yeah, I think, yeah, absolutely. And you probably don't know what you don't know. Sometimes you kind of, you're learning along the way, particularly when you're, um, just starting out for sure. Um, I've learned a lot over over the journey for sure in terms of the different things that go into it, but they are quite quite complex for sure. There's a lot of things that people probably don't realise in terms of all the work that goes into actually even getting started on site. Most people think that when when a building kind of starts on site, that's kind of the start of the journey. But for me, that's like, in a way that that sometimes feels like um, at least three quarters of the way through. That's cool. That's cool, and, and and I guess there's a lot for in the building. So certainly, when you commission someone to do your own home, there's a lot of uncertainty around: Have you chosen the right person? Have they estimated it correctly? Is it going to increase the scope? They're going to increase the scope along the way or the timeline. Um, it sounds like a common situation that you know it's pretty unpredictable. 
I guess by you've designed a business that actually is a, a developer and a builder, so you can control <laughs> the whole experience. Yeah, definitely. Um, particularly early days. So I, I mentioned when we first started out, we were focusing on smaller scale projects. Mm -hmm. um, but we had a, like a strong idea of the, the level of quality and the focus on design that we wanted to deliver. And we felt that um, that wasn't being delivered by third party builders. So my partner, Ross Trin, and I are both builders. Um, so we started a building business um, to deliver upon the promises that we were making at the point of sale to our purchasers who were buying off the plan from us. Mm -hmm. And we did that successfully for many, many years. We built 90% of our projects for the first five years of our business. Um, but as our scale grew, we chose to kind of um, decouple our building business from our development work. Mm -hmm. So we've still got a building capacity in-house and it does a lot of work still for us. Um, particularly things like hospitality fit-outs and display fit-outs and, and smaller-scale projects. But primarily these days, because of the nature of our projects and the scale of projects, we work with third-party builders. But having that in-house building capacity certainly still helps. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it must have been, how was it also starting out with a new brand in the market? Because I guess people are familiar with developers' names and brands that are kind of well-established. There's trust in that or not. Um, did you find it difficult to establish your brand at that same time as, as the development? I guess it, it, it builds. Um, back when we were starting, there was a different focus in terms of development branding. It was more about project first branding. Yeah. So you'd see you'd see projects branded beautiful girls' names, for example, and they'd have kind <laughs> of and like the kind of like there were all these amazingly named um, projects. Mm -hmm. We from the outset wanted to build equity in our, in our development brand mm -hmm. and, and trade off our, our work as we moved forward. Cause we had a long-term vision of what we want to create. Yeah. So instead of, instead of kind of branding projects um, like a fast food, superficial name that was only there for a campaign, we chose to brand all of our projects on a locationally based. So they're all, if you look at all of our projects, they're primarily just called the street name. And then there's often kind of, an endorsement by Millie associated with it, mm -hmm. which meant nothing on our first project. Um, it was probably potentially a little bit arrogant, um, but as we move forward, it kind of we've, we've built brand equity in, in the development brand, um, and now there's a I guess there's an established track record and trust in that. So Millie, Millie um, endorses the development. Well, we kind of we we ta all of our projects are. are not, um, are referenced as, as by milieu, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. which kind of, um, yeah, we've, we've tried to build brand equity in the, in the development business rather than individual projects. Yeah. I think individual projects, maybe they were doing it because they hadn't, um, hadn't thought about the next project and the project after that, because if you're only focused on making as much money out of one project as possible, it's probably not going to lead to the best possible result and you're probably not going to trade off your track record for the next project. How do you get it so well in terms of um, you know, designing for the needs of people? I mean, how do people know that they even wanted that in the first place with your developments? Yeah, I'm not sure. We, we, we have a sales and marketing business in-house, so we sell all of our projects in-house mm -hmm. in terms of trying to understand what people want. We have a direct relationship with our with our purchasers who become our, our owners, um, and we're in constant dialogue with owners 
many, many years after, I still talk to people at Moore Street. Um, and, and we often ask them what, what, what's worked well, what was unexpected, what did they like, what could we do better? Mm. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of learnings through having that dialogue with people that live in your homes. Um, but primarily, I think we design for spaces to be um, flexible and kind of uh, available for the, the rigors and routines of uh, varying degrees of lifestyles. Um, rather than trying to specifically understand um, how one particular person might like to live, as long as the house can kind of accommodate a whole bunch of different ways of living. And how do you commission the architects? How do you choose who you work with on a project? Yeah, it's 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 very locationally based and site-specific. Milieu means um, the environment or context in which one lives and is influenced by. Oh, cool. So we, we kind of... At the outset, wanted to make sure that our our buildings were a response to place, as opposed to, um, uh, I think some architects, um, and maybe that's why some developers do if they work with those architects, have um, a very distinct look and feel to their projects. Mm-hmm. So you can tell uh, potentially a developer or an architect's project if it is in um, one particular suburb compared to another particular suburb. So it's not, it's, it's kind of their strong design language rather than a response to place. Mm-hmm. We don't have a particular signature in our work as in you can't, you can't say that's a million, you wouldn't know it's a million project, but for um, we say a, a consistency of a response to place. So we choose our architects by really understanding the context first, first and foremost. And then we'll, we'll, we'll from there that will inform, um, the selection of and the brief to the architects. That's interesting. And are they always local? So they're always local, local architects from Melbourne. I'm just trying to. I'm, I'm reflecting upon all the work that we've done. Have <laughs> we used a non-local architect? No, we haven't. We have like we've spoken at times, and we've spoken to a number of kind of international architects, and we've kind of got close to um, appointing some to collaborate with a local architect. Um, but at the moment, all of our architects have been. Um, Local to Melbourne, local local to Melbourne. Yeah, some of them have practices uh, or studios nationally and internationally, but they're all got um, practices in Melbourne. Yeah, can you say a few of the architects that you work with? Oh yeah, I can say a heap of the architects we work okay, with. Okay, cool. Um, we we've done a, a lot of work early days, particularly and even still now um, with DKO. Um, some I've, I have a really close friend, Jesse Lenardi, who's the design director of that business. So we've done a heap of work with them. Fantastic. Field work. Uh, a, a business that I feel like we've grown up with in a way. They kind of started out when we started out. Um, ben and Kino, who are the who are the directors of that business, are, are great friends, and we've done an enormous amount of work together. Um, Friedman White, Mike and Alana, um, we've done a number of projects together now, um, and then most recently we've worked with sorry Design Office. We've done a heap of work. Design Office. So, Primarily an interiors-based business. We've done an we've done a, 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 an architectural project with them as well as an interiors project. But they've worked, um, oh, probably design office have worked across most of our projects. But from an interiors perspective, so mm. there's certainly a language that you'll see from an interiors perspective in our work. It's really interesting. I've, I've, we've got a place in down in Clareville on the northern beaches that's a, a little beach kind of shacky house <laughs> from the seventies uh, and. Um, it's interesting just even even as a creative person, the process of commissioning an interior designer or an architect, going through that and going, hang on, 
uh, who who do I like? What work do I like? This, and then you can go, well, what's relevant for the house or the place as well? Um, and also just that, that process is quite interesting. I, I don't know if you ever get kind of through into a project and you go, hang on a minute, this might not be the right, this might not be the right person to work with. I mean, do you ever feel, do you ever get that happening? Do you ever have oh, second, second thoughts about things along the way? I mean, you're a, a creative developer, so you're not just a, someone that commissions uh, another creative. You actually are part of the creative process, right? Yeah, we, we like to think we are for sure. Um, and to your point, um, yeah, we it's it's a huge decision and because we um, we're quite familiar with a whole bunch of different practices and we're really inspired by a whole bunch of different practices. So it's a really difficult choice, the kind of the selection of um, design team. Mm. Um, and whilst you might like someone and think their work's amazing, it certainly might not be relevant to one particular project. So if you start with what's right for this particular context and this particular project, that, that's kind of, that should shape who you work with. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it must be like uh, every development you do must be a, a big learning curve for you still. Like I find even now, I've been working for 30 plus years, um, every project that I do still involved in, I still feel like it's I'm learning from it. It's not like, you know, once you know how to do it, it's just set and you know, roll it out. There's, there's always things that come along that you've never experienced before. You might be stronger and wiser about how to deal with it, but I find that you must find that. I, I guess it must be pretty big in terms of, you know, what's at stake with a development and uh, the size of your developments, etc. There must be things that come along that throw you, or, or, uh, or maybe I should ask that question: <laughs> Do things come along that throw you through a, a development along the process? Uh. Yeah, every day, every day. I think like the processes are the same, but there's always new challenges in any particular project. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're always pushing ourselves. Like I think if you look at the, and particularly with the design teams that we work with, we're always kind of looking to work with new people who will inspire us. And often that means that we're, we're never kind of redoing what we've done before um it's easy if you've done it um a number of times with a particular set of teams Mm -hmm. um but we're always working with new and exciting people and that that will lead to challenges because i guess some of the practices that we work with particularly don't have a significant amount of multi-residential experience um whilst they're super creative and have amazing ideas which is kind of what why we're choosing to work with them but there's a challenging kind of um, them, uh, them kind of uh, applying those ideas to a multi-residential um, project, mm. um, and and just generally, there's always challenges in projects that come up that you wouldn't, you haven't seen, or that you wouldn't have thought of, for sure. And I guess it probably once you've got a good relationship with a with a builder or with a um, an architect, etc., you probably want to keep that relationship going don't you like you probably it it how do you know when to move on to somebody else i mean if <laughs> maybe it's not been a great experience maybe that's that's definitely a way to move on i'm not saying that happened but um you know even if you had a great experience with somebody it's it's be it'd be a tough decision to work out okay look this new development we're doing we're gonna we're gonna put it out there again we're gonna think about who we want who's the right person for this um, do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, people probably naturally would go straight into their safety zone and stick with what feels comfortable and familiar. 
Yeah, yeah. And it, it is tough because we have such great working relationships with all the architects that we've worked with. But as we continue to grow and as we continue to kind of um, do work over many, many years, that, that, that portfolio of people that we've worked with or that kind of network of people that we've worked with grows and we're, we're keen on it continuing to grow, but that doesn't mean that we don't want to work with the architect that we worked with eight years ago. We, we do, but um, if you start with that um, that idea of response to place um, mm. and if you try and push yourself and try and continue to evolve and kind of challenge yourself and inspire yourself, it means that you'll continue to work with um, a diverse group of people. Mm, it's amazing. And you, you're recently named top de- property developer in the world by Monocle magazine. Um their inaugural design awards, which is incredible. Well done, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we were particularly um, chuffed about that recognition. The whole team was. Um, Monocle is one of our favourite magazines, and we're refer- often referring to it as a benchmark for inspiration. So yeah, it was it was it was very gratifying. Um, it's not that you sort of you don't seek out to win awards or receive recognition, but I think if you're doing good work, it's often a consequence of that. Yeah, and the fact that uh, it's it's one of these awards that you don't enter it, do you? They just they just pick people around the world. Yeah, yeah. We didn't we we weren't aware of it until they contacted us um, in advance of the publication, and yeah, we were absolutely wrapped. It's um, and that that the quality of uh, and the diversity of um, the other award recipients are um, amazing. So we're yeah. really pleased to be a part of it. And does that create opportunities for you around the world as a result? Certain visibility, I guess, as people around the world see what's going on. Yeah, probably visibility for sure. Um, Yeah, visibility for sure. Um, And we're, we, maybe not initially, um, but more recently we are looking um, to overseas for inspiration and networks and support. We've kind of recently established this initiative where we've networked ourselves with a number of different developers overseas that inspire us um, and and started kind of talking about um, reviewing each other's work and kind of contributing to each other's work, which is kind of really interesting. One of the things that I find amazing about architects and architects as peers is they're so supportive of each other Mm. and it's so so collegial but in 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 development you haven't really had that i think it's just because it's kind of it's such a kind of competitive space um and developers are typically quite closed as a result of that and they're not kind of i think it's it's becoming more uh it's becoming more this way now but previously they haven't been so supportive of each other so we were trying to create a network um, similar to what architects have, but we felt that it would be difficult to do that um, on a on a local level. Um, so we've reached out to a number of the developers that inspire us internationally. Um, yeah, we're really excited about that initiative. And and you get together with them. Or were they were they receiving that well? That oh yeah, approach? everyone's been so kind of received it so well and so excited about the concept. So yeah, we get together, um, we share projects that we've worked on, and we kind of present those projects and we talk about the challenges that we had, what worked well, what didn't work well, and we receive feedback and it's the learnings that you get because you kind of you, you in Melbourne, it's a very kind of um, you get stuck in your ways a little bit potentially, and so when you're looking at a project in British Columbia or in the UK or um in new york um it just expands your mind in terms of what things are possible and how they've done things etc 
Yeah, that's really cool. I and mean, that's just like, yes, your education, isn't it? It's just so, you know, oh, yeah. Keep and the going. team gets so much out of it. Like, it's amazing for the for the guys and girls in the office. Does it does it highlight how good it is in Melbourne for you, or or what does it make you feel? I think Melbourne. Um, I've often reflected upon this, and we were talking talking about this just the other week together. Melbourne's particularly unique, at least in Australia, um, for the um, quality uh, and nature of development. Uh, I've tried to think about why that is, and I think it's got a lot to do with well, you've got Sydney and Melbourne as I guess the the largest capital cities or the largest cities in in Australia but the entry point so, so that's probably naturally where you're going to see the most kind of kind of um, medium and high density development in those two cities typically um, more so now in other cities but the entry point in Sydney is so much higher than Melbourne so it probably is prohibitive to smaller kind of more creative developers starting out compared to melbourne so i think in melbourne we're really lucky like a lot of our development peers are just doing fantastic work and um and we, uh, uh, touching on what i said before we are quite supportive as a community um which is great it's it's yeah it's interesting that because we lived in melbourne for a, a few years too and and it seemed to be very much in the in the daily conversation with with certain the family um Luca's uh, grandparents, etc., in the in the community around, uh, always talking about subdividing their block. You know, they always had, <laughs> they were always like had a big block that they were subdividing, and you know, got twenty houses out of it, and <laughs> like even turning it into two, one into two, and then you know, one into four, and then you go. There seemed to be like over time, you could see it around that there were over time people were kind of gaining confidence in the success of that subdivision. And then they go on to a bigger project, a bigger project, as opposed to a big corporate, you know, developer going into a city and, you know, doing a whole, you know, I don't know, 60 story building or whatever it might be. It seemed to be like a, it seemed to be always part of the Melbourne culture that, and um, certainly it, I think the, the definitely, taste, like, taste I think as it, well, incredible yeah. taste. I think it might have something to do, I, I don't know, just the, the waves of migration in Melbourne and, um, um, the the way um, migrants have looked at kind of um, uh, being entrepreneurial has definitely kind yeah. of encouraged that. Yeah, 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 definitely entrepreneurial and definitely often on the outskirts of the city too, yeah. right? So it's kind yeah. of, it is cheaper, more affordable to do it. Whereas Sydney, just across the whole of Sydney, is just ridiculously expensive. Maybe that prohibits that kind of activity. But I'm sure it, it happens still, of course. Um, but it's far more expensive, far more, I guess, of a commitment and maybe more restriction. Maybe, um, you know, what, what are the building laws like in, I mean, I suppose you, as you studied law, you'd be good to navigate that, uh, that whole process with, um, planning permission, et cetera. Yeah, the, 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 I, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with the New South Wales planning controls, um, as compared to Melbourne and they are quite different. Um, uh, planning in Melbourne, um, as in Sydney, um, is very challenging, and uh, I feel like it's increasingly challenging. It's prohibitive in terms of um, the need for the provision of housing, um, and I can understand, I guess, community sentiment towards um, developers maximising sites and stuff. But I just think there's a better way, and there's a lot of a lot of work that needs to be done 
from a planning perspective that would assist the community, but also assist developers um, in delivering housing at a more um, efficient manner um, rather than get every single project these days ends up in, in the appeal courts, which is VCAT in Melbourne, which is just um, a waste of time and resources, which ends up costing the end purchaser money. Um, so if it was if it was much clearer about what can be done, then the community would understand that and developers wouldn't end up in VCAT and the provision of housing would be more efficient and therefore more, uh, more economical. Well, how, how is it that, I remember going to Melbourne maybe 20 years ago for the first time and from London and been in design for a very long time and you know very familiar with architecture in London and around the world but going to Melbourne for the very first time and walking around and, and you know bumping into a, a wood marsh house um, yeah. you know amongst other just normal looking houses and just going holy cow what is that <laughs> what, yeah. what's it doing here how the hell do they get away with doing that and just going that is so amazing to see that you're very familiar with it because you've grown up with it and it's always around you, I guess. But And probably over time, more and more of these magical uh, homes or houses or buildings that are just really super creative, challenging, uh, really interesting use of materials, uh, nothing straight. Everything is very, um, uh, I guess, unconventional and that kind of, I guess, that delight and surprise and that unexpected uh, bumping into something like that is really quite incredible. I mean, if I don't know what it's like for the person owning it. Is it, is it a statement or is it just a commissioning art or commission, commissioning creativity? It's kind of interesting. And kind of Sydney just didn't, didn't seem to have any of that. Um, and it still hasn't got, I don't think it has anywhere near as much as what Melbourne has in terms of, you know, real expressive architecture what what is it the architects themselves is it is it the planning restrictions is it is it the the, the customers commissioning it what what is it that's different it's quite mm. it's so different i mean i think sydney's yeah. really getting up to speed and there's a lot of really interesting things happening now um and i i'm talking that's probably sounds such a generalistic kind of uh approach in terms of how i'm saying it but i just still feel that melbourne's just leaps and bounds ahead in terms of that just acceptance of it and the it's actually happening on a daily basis it's not occasionally it's happening all the time yeah it's a really interesting point and it might have something to do with i guess the different the different cultures of of melbourne and sydney um historically at least um melbourne has had a really strong appreciation of design um and um valuing um that sort of culture i think sydney um Historically, has it been a much more outdoors-focused culture, potentially? Um, maybe that has something to do with maybe the planning controls. Um, planning controls, I, I know in Sydney, are much more prescriptive, um, and maybe that inhibits um, freedom of design and architecture to some extent. We've now got in Melbourne um, the... Um, the better apartment design guides, which um, are really kind of focused on bringing up the bottom half in a way, um, but there's concern that they'll, they'll inhibit creativity of, of really um, quality architectural outcomes because they're kind of 
they they narrow what you can do, which in some respects is good because it means you won't get a whole bunch of really bad outcomes, but it also probably means that you won't get a whole bunch of really exceptional outcomes because mm. of what you can do is limited a bit. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a whole lot in that. Um, I'm not I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to say it's just because Melbourne, Melbourne. Um, I'm from Melbourne, so I'm biased, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's be good. It's good that you're surrounded with that, and no doubt it's influenced um, how you live and how you approach projects as well. What what other um, are there other developers can you mention that you you think are doing great things? Yeah, sure. Um, well, locally, I think um, if I talk about Melbourne, um, friends and peers of ours, and, and I guess. Um, in a large way or, or at least some way um, an inspiration to our business was their metro um, so Jeff Proven um, started that business um, we're now in joint venture with them on a project in Wilson Ave which um, was a real kind of fantastic thing for us as a business to be able to, to partner and that's one of the reasons we, we, we like to partner across a whole bunch of different projects um, uh, I think um, some of the work that Nightingale are doing, it's, it's, it's different to our work, but it's, it's really exceptional work. Um, and then even we're, we're, we're in partnership with larger scale developers. Now we're working with, um, Mervac on a large pro build to rent project for their build to rent business in okay. Albert street in Brunswick. Um, I think they're doing some great work. Um, we're in partnership with Stockland on a, on a project in, in Brunswick. Um, yeah, there's, there's wow. uh, the guys from the guys from Angle are doing some good work. Um, oh, there's a whole heap who are doing some really good work in Melbourne, um, both on a smaller scale, like our scale, um, and then on a larger, more corporate scale as well. Oh, that's cool! Wow, that's amazing. I was going to ask you why you're partnering, but now I kind of get it um, in terms of those larger scale uh, developers that you're partnering with. It's funny we did the the built to rent branding for Live and the naming and the branding for that for Merva. Ah, yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, we've always, across all of our projects, we've liked to partner with people. Um, we think it um, is a very collaborative process. Two heads are often better than one. Um, and it allows us to do more work as well. It allows us to kind of have an influence over a city um, on a much broader scale than what we could if we were only doing our own projects. So having an opportunity to work on such a significant and large scale project with Mervac and again with Stockland compared to, I guess, the more fine grain work that we do um, has been a, a great challenge and a real inspiration for us. That's really cool. And, and let's just talk about how you design communities because you are, you know, that first project, um, Moore Street, um, you know, converting that to, was it five townhouses? Yeah, yeah, that was five so, townhouses. Yeah, so um, that's a, yeah. that becomes a community. It goes from one house to, to five. You've got five potential families living there. How do you design for that, for more than one, you know, more than one person? Um, and including kind of, I guess, securing the right tenants for a development and also around, if, is there a retail, is there a hospitality addition to it as well? Yeah, um, so from a designing for a community perspective we we learned very quickly or very early on that there's a lot of different ways in which people want to live and there's a lot of different personalities as well some people are more extroverted and some people are more introverted so some people like the idea of being a part of a community but not necessarily having it sort of 
in their face and don't feel like they want to be necessarily involved in all these community activities. Um, so you don't want to force community, but you want to develop spaces that encourage community, particularly that kind of incidental nature of community. There's something um, particularly for um, say our Bree Street project, there are a number of um, older singles that bought into that project and knowing that they've got neighbors um, right as part of the community next to them, but not having to forced to be interacting with them. So that, that, that chance meeting in the, in the corridor or the lift or community notice boards, that sort of, those sort of incidental things or that, that encourage community, but don't force it in your face. Um, are the way we try and I guess design for community these days. Do you think, are we living differently today than we were 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Uh, I think definitely. Yeah. And I think more and more. So, um, at least in Melbourne 20, 30 years ago, people were probably more interested in living in the middle ring. Um, so having a large backyard and they would drive into the CBD for, um, for work and then they'd drive home um, 40 minutes or half an hour um, and they'd spend their weekends in the middle ring suburbs. But that changed um, maybe sort of 10 years ago. Now the inner ring is a really popular place to live. Um, but there's, there's, so you, so you don't have um, the large backyards in those places. But the, but then with the established house pricing going up so considerably in that in that inner ring, it's forced um, the choice that we spoke about, the choice to be sort of moving back out to the outer ring potentially, or staying in the in the inner ring of um, in Melbourne. I'm talking about. Um, so we're definitely living a denser lives, but I think if, as a result of living kind of more closer together, the spaces, the, the, the community infrastructure and the community spaces, parks, et cetera, become so many, so much more important. Yeah, they really do. I mean, I guess the kind of the question is, are we living better as well? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Absolutely. It's interesting because you talk about design before and how um, Melbourne's always been design focused and when you look at design for the home uh now if you look at uh, there's never been a time that architecture interior design furniture design product design fashion design it's, it's at an all-time high isn't it and if you look at magazines and publications and instagram it's just like the incredible amount of people doing amazing stuff like there's so much variety and so much quality today uh I've never seen it so much. I mean, it's confusing, to be honest. I find it really hard to decide on on what to get uh, if I need something because there's so many options and so many people having a go at, uh, in a way, it used to be the, the kind of the, the establishment. There's only a few people making furniture at one stage. Now, you know, there's, there's so many people just doing different things. Really, It's really, really cool. And I guess it's like a young developer like yourself starting out and having a go. Um, even probably against the odds, really, and you've made it. You've made it work, but it's interesting how its developments have, have have a massive leap forward, and they've been incredibly creative and evolving, and everything associated with that that you fill your home with or how you live, etc., has also been um, moving forward as well. I don't know. Yeah, if there's, I I don't think, know if there's a question. It's kind of a statement. But. Oh, I think Instagram particularly hasn't it. It's kind of the. Um, I think it's like some of it's good, but some of it's bad as well. Um, it's so, um, 
in some respects, it's quite like because it's so um, instantaneous and quick and in a way superficial mm-hmm. um, and so image based. I think definitely the idea of there being more people doing great work is a fantastic thing. Um, but I think getting caught up on um, all these beautiful images and kind of, but they don't really kind of go to the heart of how people live. And uh, the, I really love Apartmento magazine. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that magazine because it's kind of, it's more personality based yeah. um, and it's kind of less focused so much on a beautiful interior, more focused on um, the people that live in the space and how they influence that space. Yeah. Real people. Um, yeah, real, real people real people in their interiors. Homes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a good inspiration to us, actually. What's your perspective on and what's your efforts around sustainability with your developments? Yeah, um, it's well, at the outset, it's super important um, and it's always been really important to us. But it's probably not, um, and I know there are a number of developers that um, it is their core focus. I wouldn't say sustainability is our core focus. It's certainly a very important um, thing to our projects and our projects are inherently sustainable. Um, and if someone asks us about our projects, we need to be confident that we, we have strong sustainability credentials, but it's not the lead of our projects. It's not, I guess it's not the thing that defines our projects. Um, it's really important to us. It's kind of, we've spoken about this internally, um, because there are, like there is a, a huge push from a sustainable perspective and you could, you could lead with that, um, but we think it's um, it's, a, it's it's a it's, it's one part of what makes a really fantastic project. So for us, we call it sustainability as standard. Um, it's an extremely important part of our projects, and all of our projects have really strong sustainability credentials. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's it's one part. That's cool. And what what kind of things? What what kind of sustainable uh, um, things that you do on your developments? Yeah, um, the, the, I guess the, the big move these days that a lot of projects do, and we do this now as well, um, is um, carbon neutrality. So um, no gas, um, electric heat pumps, um, our, our Breeze Street project um, that we've just finished, um, uh, we uh, imported a heat pump from overseas and it, um, have hydronic heating, no air conditioning, um, community laundries, um, we have brass fixtures um, and door furniture um, rather than um, typical um, door furniture and fixtures. Um, oh, what, what, we, why is we, that? What, what's the difference? Uh, because the, 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 the chrome, chrome um, finishing is quite a... Um, it's really bad for the environment, the way chrome is um, manufactured. Mm-hmm. So we've moved away from that. Um, we've, on that project, we had um, recycled timber boards. So, and I love it because you walk through that project, typically in an apartment building, you'll have engineered floorboards mm-hmm. um, and they're perfect. They look perfect. That project, you walk through it and you can hear the boards creaking. Nice. So it feels like you're in an old home and there's something really kind of, nostalgic about um, getting up in the middle of night, night needing to go to the loo and you hear, you know, where the creek in the board is. Um, <laughs> and and these, these apartments have that, which I just think is really special. Um, yeah. And so we also, I guess, from a sustainability perspective, we try and, I guess, pare back things. So only put in what you need as well. 
Um, what about solar panels, etc.? Is it are you, are you design yeah. your developments off the grid at all? Uh, not completely off the grid, but we do buy um, we do buy green energy, so hundred uh, percent green energy, and we do have a lot of solar um, on our on in our projects that will boost the hot water systems. How do you juggle everything with your, your family and commitments and, and work life? That's a great question. In the, um, <laughs> Sounds really yeah, well. No, <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's a challenge. Um, I have I have two young. I have a beautiful wife and two young children. Um, but there are the children are quite a handful at this age, um, yeah. and we also have quite a dynamic business. So there's a lot of different kind of initiatives and different parts of our business. Um, so I think I'm pretty good at like um, managing a whole bunch of different things and compartmentalizing those 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 things. Um, but there's always a lot going on, that's for sure. Yeah, and I remember the early days when my kids were young and starting a business. It was um, it was like everything was urgent and everything was up in the air. Um, oh, it, yeah, it gets better I, in time, right? Yeah, I can't. I actually can't like. I don't, know, I don't know about you, but when I was at uni and you kind of, you have whole afternoons off. Like you, <laughs> you, you'll, you'll, you'll kind of just sit around for a whole afternoon. I can't remember you the time I had it. it. You squandered I had, it. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember the time I had five minutes to myself. No, but I know. You need, to, you need to have, you make sure you have some time to um, do your yeah, thing. Absolutely. Um, let's just get back to hospitality. Let's talk about the, the, the business of hospitality and the addition to your, your business. Yeah, sure. It's a super important part of our business, our hospitality business. Um, it started out, um, our, our projects, um, I think I talked earlier about the evolution of our project scale. So we've, we started out doing smaller scale projects, then our projects grew, and we were developing apartment buildings in commercial and mixed use zones. So you'd have spaces at ground floor that weren't um, suitable for residential, but they were spaces that were important spaces. Um, and often, I guess, the, 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 the way those spaces have been dealt with in the past by other developers is you'll see beautiful renders um, in glossy brochures of wine bars and cafes kind mm. of depicted. Yeah. Uh, but the reality is the developers focused on selling out the apartments above and they've forgotten about those spaces. So when mm. you come to the end of the project, often it's for lease or there's a tenant in there that hasn't had the opportunity to kind of curate the space. That's so kind of half not really working that well. Um, but it's such an important part to the building, but also as a developer that cares about what people think about the work that it does, it, it might be the only thing that someone that doesn't own an apartment or have a friend that owns an apartment in that building interacts with. Yeah. So it's a really strong first impression of the building and, and of the developer. Um, so we wanted to, I guess, flip that on its head and control the outcome and like contribute to the community long after our work was just there. Um, so I guess if you start from there and then you ask yourself, what does a developer know about hospitality? Um, not very much, typically. Um, I was fortunate in that my family, my family, my two sisters are in hospitality um, and they own restaurants, um, really successful restaurants. So really, we as a family got together and said, we can do this better. Um, there's a way in which um, I'm a developer, you're in hospitality. Let's partner that and let's kind of control and curate the space at ground floor 
Um, so now we own and operate a bunch of different venues within our buildings at ground floor. And we've, we've found that it's such a strong community builder for our residents, yeah. but also the local community. Yeah. Um, and it's often when we engage with our purchases, like we said, like I said earlier that we do, it's often the thing that they say that they like most about our buildings, the space mm-hmm. at ground floor and the kind of the, the hospitality venue at ground floor. That's so important, isn't it? Because often people, the local community would see a development, you know, someone knocking down something that was there before um, as an inconvenience and disrupting or dividing the community. And you're totally right in terms of how important it is to get what you're adding to the community, what you're as a developer adding in terms of value to the local community, not just the people who are moving into the building. Oh, absolutely. And there's just so many, again, challenging the perceptions, but there's so many, the perception is that you can't do a good hospitality venue at the bottom of an apartment building. Um, typically, they're usually not very good. Whereas these ones are, um, and and you're seeing it more now. And I think um, people are starting to realize that you can do great venues at the bottom of apartment buildings, which is, is good to see. And it's really cool that if you're heading up the hospitality in your own developments, you are the landlord as well as the business owner, right? Is that how it works? Yeah, that's right. So we'll we'll um, curate and then own the space and then um, operate. Um, so there'll be a separate entity that own. Sorry, we'll we'll own and operate the space, but it's two separate entities. So that's kind of getting into the technicalities of uh, yeah, how we yeah, structure yeah. it. But you can't be complaining about the landlord. <laughs> like, no, we like, are the landlord. Yeah, like yeah, most the uh, people are. Oh, a very friendly la- landlord, particularly <laughs> last year. <laughs> But um, that's that's a really interesting model. My God, that just makes so much sense. It does, yeah. And it's and from a development perspective as well. If you've got a good and like if you, even if you just boil it down to a pure financial um, viewpoint, if you've got a good hospitality venue in a space, that space is worth more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, and is it? Do you think that's contributing to how you then design? the buildings themselves in the first place are you building it around that uh we put no we don't we probably don't start from the hospitality venue we probably the hospitality venue seems to be the thing that we turn our minds to like it'll be there like we're we're working on a project in Ligon Street in Brunswick East at the moment and this particular part of Ligon Street Brunswick East is a a really up-and-coming cultural and hospitality strip Um, and we kind of had an idea that we'd like to do something there, um, a seed of an idea as we were developing the apartment building or as we were designing the apartment building. But we've now come back to it um, now that the project has kind of um, materialised in a way. Um, and it's kind of, there's, a, there's a, a, a space that we're working with to kind of resolve and make suitable for, um, for the, for the um, hospitality venue that we might be putting there. It's interesting. There's some countries in some countries, Scandinavia. I think they're they're working on projects that are a mixture of kind of different co co living with different age groups from young to old, uh, and seeing how that that's quite an interesting kind of model. Um, right now, we've got this issue with aged care and and uh, poor quality aged care homes, etc. Do you see there's an opportunity for you as an organisation to be designing homes for people for life in general, for life? Absolutely. Living? Yeah, like full like generational living, absolutely. Um, I, I think you'll see it more and more um, as um, apartment living becomes more the norm. 
Mm. Um, as you said, like um, over in Europe, it's um, there are probably they're they're ahead of us, um, but we're certainly looking at different different ways to accommodate um, different generations and different stages of life, um, from early stage renting all the way through to kind of um, lifestyle or kind of retirement living. Mm. How has the pandemic affected you guys? I'd say it's like from a from a business perspective, obviously there were interruptions last year. Melbourne went into lockdown for quite a considerable period of time. That mm-hmm. had an effect on the hospitality venues probably most um, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but also from a construction perspective, a number of there were a number of periods there which slowed construction. It was also difficult to meet with people, which means it was difficult to sell apartments. Um, mm-hmm. But we fared pretty well through it um, and we were kind of stronger off the back of it. Um, but it's also made us think about what people want from a space. I think off the back of, off the back of COVID, people have rethought, I guess, both work and life and how they, how they, um, do both of those things. Um, and and that's kind of impact on, impacted on how we're now thinking about, um, apartment design. Do you think people have more? It sounds like you've always had like your clients or your people buying into your developments having a say in it. Are they having more of a say now than before? Um, we definitely have. Um, most of our projects will engage with potential purchases as part of the design phase. So we'll 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 introduce the the location, the site, the team, and then we'll invite people to have feedback on what they'd like to see in the project. Mm. And that really shapes what we put into the project, and we'll present that back to the people that have um, that have engaged with us. Um, uh, are we seeing it more? I think people, the market is definitely more astute than what they were say ten years ago, because they've seen such. I guess they've learnt through really bad examples. I feel um, mm. so. When we meet with purchasers now, purchasers understand. Um, there's so much more um, educated on what a good apartment is, which is great to see. Yeah, it's interesting when, when I don't know how long Nightingale's been around for, is it maybe was it three years, five years or something? It, it really shook up the market, didn't it? I mean, it became like, wow, this is such a cool way to do a development. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they've been a real catalyst for change. Um, and like Jeremy, Jeremy is a good friend and we've done a lot of work with Jeremy. Um, and he, he often says that um, when developers start doing good work, Nightingale won't be needed um, because <laughs> he, he, he wants to see great work done. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, we often have talks about um, he, 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 he exists or Nightingale exists to improve housing. Um, yeah, and, and, and we're there for the same reason. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, what inspires you outside of work? My family, first and foremost, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I have a beautiful family and extended family, sisters and and dad. Um, and then outside of that, I'm a I'm a keen but average surfer. So oh. um, I'm inspired by um, getting better um, at surfing. I've been surfing for a long period of time, but um, living in Melbourne, unlike Sydney, we don't have a beach immediately next to us or beaches immediately next to us. Um, but we do have a wave pool now. We've got a wave pool. Um, I live in the inner north of Melbourne um, and the wave pool's close. So I try and get out there a fair bit. Wow. Is that fun? 
Oh, it's great fun, yeah, particularly for um, time-poor people. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not as good as going to the ocean, absolutely, um, but it, it's a great deal of fun. I'm not sure we've even got one here yet. I think, there's, I think you're going to have one shortly by the looks of it. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm up in Avalon and it's incredible surf uh, culture yeah, here. Yeah, so you don't need a, yeah, you don't need a wave pool. You've just got great surf. No, it's 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 wonderful. We're actually doing an ocean series coming up after the Lego to Skyscraper series, um, which we're excited about. And it's, I I just love watching these young kids that are they've grown up on the beach surfing, and they do it every single day. And talking to these old, weathered guys, you know, my age, probably older, um, who have done it. Who are these? The kids that have grown up, and that's them, and kind of yeah. every day of their life, they yeah. have to surf no matter what. It's just like amazing. I wish I missed out on that. So I wish. I've been rescued, rescued twice um, in two days, which didn't uh, didn't go down well. And uh, oh, no. I, re I really love the fact that they just do this for their own mental um, well-being. Oh, it's a great way as a center to your life. Like it's just a, such a healthy way of kind of living. Yeah. What are the plans for the for the future for the business? We've got yeah. We've got, obviously we're, we're looking um, at strategic growth. Um, we're known for Historically, we've been known as, a, I guess, a, a, a medium-scale developer. I say medium, probably most recently medium-scale. We, we were a small-scale developer when we started, um, primarily in the inner north, and we've got plans to, I guess, grow beyond that that perception. Most recently, we've bought a number of projects outside of the inner north. Um, but I don't think, like, the, the nature of developers, often you'll see, or again, the perception of developers is they'll do a small project and they'll do a medium project, then they'll do a large project, and they'll either retire or they would have gone bust. Um, <laughs> for, for us, we, we want to be continuing to develop good projects for a long period of time. Again, looking at someone like Neo Metro, I think they started in the late 80s, yeah, so for us, we're interested in continuing to do great work for a long period of time. Mm. Let's just talk about developers or developing ideas because this is what I guess the bulk of the people listening in or a whole array of people uh, or walks of life around the country, around the world um, who are listening in. And, and often developing ideas is exciting and equally a lot of ideas don't materialize because for whatever reason, not uh, everybody has a confidence um, to actually take an idea and bring it into the world, whether it's a building, a development, or whether it's a brand, or whether it's an artwork, or whatever it might be, starting a business, etc. What is it, what kind of advice could you give people um, through your learnings of how you could break through and bring your ideas to life? Like you've got to be well prepared. Like I think if you look at our background or my background, I did a lot of preparation to start our business. Um, but you won't know if you don't give it a shot either. Mm. And how do you know when it's the right thing to invest that time in? Um, I think if you feel prepared, like you, 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 like I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend. My advice is not just jump in if you don't have the, the um, experience or the um, skill set. But I, I think if you if you understand what's required and you prepare yourself, and then once once you're feeling adequately equipped, I think give it a go. Mm, cool, uh, Michael. It's been fantastic catching up with you. Uh, one last question I have to ask, and I ask every guest, uh, and you don't have to say yes just because it's uh, called design your life. But have you designed your life? 
I, I, I think in part, yes. Um, and in part, it's kind of just, it happens around you a bit, doesn't it? I think that's mm. the nature of life. It kind of it, it happens around you. Um, so don't know if that's a good answer, but um, in part, yes. Okay, cool. All right, Michael, thank you so much for today. It's been really wonderful catching up with you. You too. Thanks, Vince. Um, enjoyed the chat. Cool. Take care. See you, mate. Thanks for listening in to this week's episode of Design Your Life from Lego to Skyscrapers. Tune in next week, we'll be catching up with the founder, Ben Van Berkel, and Associate Director, Sander Vasluis, of the globally acclaimed architectural firm, UN Studio. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.